Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Joining me over there, Matt Myers, MLB.com national editor. Matt, hello. Hey, Mike. How are you? Survived the trading deadline. Survived. Thrived. Thrived the trading deadline. Um, I want to say real quick, I'm fingers crossed, hopeful we have some new listeners this week because I was fortunate enough to go on the uh, Colorado Rockies broadcast for a few innings last week, uh, thanks to to Drew Goodman and Ryan Spielberg, and we got to mention the podcast and people were asking me about it on Twitter. So hopefully we have some new listeners. Welcome, Colorado fans. Uh, I encourage you to go back because we've done like six different Rocky shows, (laughs) and uh, hopefully you like them all. So what we usually do is uh, sometimes we'll talk about some cool StatCast stuff. Sometimes we'll just try to be smart baseball fans, and today I hope we can do a little bit of both, Uh, but since it is the day after the trading deadline. We're going to get right to all the interesting stuff that happened yesterday. And uh, joining us here in studio is MLBPipeline.com's Jonathan Mayo. Jonathan, hello. Hey. Prospect expert. Okay. Well, yeah, we're going to go with that. (laughs) Um, And so if you didn't see uh, on MLB Pipeline and MLB.com, Jonathan ranked all the prospects that got traded. And uh, I've got a couple questions about several of these guys, but kind of more big picture. You know, what stood out to you? Were you surprised by, uh, you know, the level of some of these guys that got moved or maybe for what they brought back in return? I think it's what people were asking for in terms of prospects, uh, I think you know, the Will Smith trade is the one that really stands out as the, really, they were able to get a Phil Bickford for Will Smith. But from what I gather, everyone's asking price was extremely high. And I don't know if that speaks to uh, an ongoing shift of uh, valuing prospects more highly than, say, a few years ago when people were trading them like nothing. But So people had really high asking prices, and I think that's why... A lot of the trades didn't get done till super last second, uh, and then people were willing to to, to pay the price. Uh, a lot of people didn't come down from their offers, but they got people to pay for you know to pay for it. And you look at the Brewers; they got Bickford for Will Smith, and they must be very thankful to Jonathan Lucroy that he vetoed that Indians trade because I think even though they included Jeremy Jeffress, what they got back from the Rangers was better than the package from the Indians. Yeah, you mentioned Bickford, and uh, yeah, that was definitely a trade that stood out for me. Another one that really shocked me was Carlos Beltran. Goes from the Yankees to Texas. He's a perfect fit in Texas. But he got Dylan Tate and two other prospects going back. And Dylan Tate was the number four overall pick last year. Uh, Bickford was a, a top uh, first-round draft pick last year. Josh Naylor, who went from uh, uh, the Marlins to San Diego, number one draft pick last year. And so I guess my question is, you know, you're shocked by the, the, the how highly they were drafted and they were moved, but once you start getting some actual on-field data in the pros, do you kind of wipe away what the draft pick was, or do you still look at those guys as, as, the, as elite as they were a year ago? Probably a, probably a balance. Uh, it's not like there's that much data. I mean, they've played for a year. Josh Naylor was in the South Atlantic League, uh, as was Dylan Tate. Phil Bickford had uh, pitched his way from the South Atlantic League to the California League. So, I, you know, I, I, I think you put away some of it, and it seemed to me that the Rangers had soured on Dylan Tate, uh, maybe more so than the other teams that traded their first-rounders. Uh, you look at the Marlins, their farm system isn't very deep. Josh Naylor was one of the few commodities they had to offer up, I think, in a, in a larger trade, so there's a reason for that. But, uh, you know, Tate really hadn't been pitching well. It's, it's uh, awfully early to cut, cut bait on a, on a first-round pick, a number four guy. So considering that Carlos Beltran, you know, only had two months left, uh, they traded a pretty good guy away for, what, 150 plate appearances, something like that? Well, so you mentioned Tate hadn't been pitching well. Uh, <coughs> it's, and simultaneously, that it's not really been a lot of sample size. So when you look at someone like Tate, has he has he taken a step back since the draft, or did the Rangers maybe misevaluate him? Like, what do you see with that kind of situation? I mean, a, everyone had him right in that neck of the woods. He threw extremely well. There was a little risk in that he didn't have a long track record as a starting pitcher. Now that could be a positive because his arm was fresher, 
He's not the biggest guy in the world. Um, so, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't think they misevaluated. <clears throat> he started out the year really well and then got hurt, and his stuff kind of backed up when he got back. So I don't, I haven't gotten recent reports on whether he lost you know, velocity, things like that, but I think it was a 311 batting average against him. He was in low A for a college guy. It's not like he was pitching in double A and struggling like, say, Carson Fulmer was early in the year. Um, so I think the Yankees will just hope to, re, you know, hit the reset button. I'd continue to let him develop as a starter and see what happens. If they want to shorten him up, he's got closing experience in college, and he's, he was good at it. So uh, I think worst-case scenario, you end up with a high-leverage reliever late in games. Speaking of the Yankees, it seems like people have been waiting them for years to sort of do this kind of rebuild, and they seem to have put themselves in position to get good again a lot more quickly than maybe people thought a few months ago. How quickly do you think they could be back into being an elite team with guys like Frazier and Aaron Judge and et cetera that they acquired as part of the core? Right. So outside of Frazier, the, the guys that they acquired are a little bit further away. You know, Gleyber Torres and Justice Sheffield were both in high A, so you're probably going to have to wait another at least another full year. Uh, Matt, I, I think some of that depends on what they decide to do with this now rich farm system. Uh, if they hold on to almost all of them and just completely promote from within and try to build a, a dynasty like they did in the, in the late 90s, then it's probably going to take a little while. They have enough talent in their system now where they could flip them during the offseason, be active like everyone is used to the Yankees being, and then they could be right there again. It's not like this team is 40 games under 500 and 30 games out of first place. Uh, I know they're aging, but they haven't been terrible. So I think if they could make a couple of really smart moves without totally blowing up the farm system that they've built. And it's a farm system that was getting better before they made all these trades. It, it, you know, they'd done much better in the, in the draft and internationally. Uh, they were paying much more attention to that and not just trading everybody away willy-nilly. Uh, the trades they made obviously added to that tremendously. Uh, they could trade for some big league pieces and still have plenty of depth left over. I want to go back to one of the, the smaller <coughs> trades from a couple of days earlier. Uh, the Rangers traded for Lucas Harrell, and that kind of some eyes got raised up about that because Harrell hadn't been in the big leagues in a couple of years. He was on some of those really you know bottom level Astros teams, and people thought, well, they, where did they dig this guy up? But the more you look at it, the less it really seemed to be about Harrell and more about Dario Alvarez, who had been with the Mets, had been uh, caught on waivers. Uh, Braves picked him up, and he was just lights out, blowing people away. Was this a guy who was even on the radar whatsoever? Because he seems like he could be a useful reliever for them. I think I had him. He was a Met originally. He was a Met, yeah. yeah. I, I think I had him on the Mets list at one point in time, and then on the Braves list, unless he graduated off. I mean, he's a lefty specialist. If I, you know, um, you're, you know, I'm pulling that from the yeah. The but he's just striking guys out left and right. Oh no, he's yeah. Well, speak, I mean, just <clears throat> speaking of what you said before about like Bickford for Will Smith, the fact that I mean Travis Demerit, I mean, he was in the Futures game and he's going right. for. <laughs> Darren Alvarez. Future right. game isn't always an indicator of like elite prospect status, but like he's kind of a guy. And like Harold and Darren Alvarez, that sort of speaks to the craziness of trades as much as anything. Right. And it's sort of quietly, we probably didn't see the warning signs coming, but uh, you're probably right. And, and uh, yeah, Alvarez was always very effective in the minors. I mean, it screamed his splits were insane in, in, in the minors. And so he looked like a guy who would just be <clears throat> called on to get lefties out, but guys like that can pitch for. 15, 20 years in the big leagues. And Demerit is right on that fringe of being a guy, you know, <clears throat> because, yeah, he played in the Futures game. Everyone's got to have somebody go. 
Um, although the Rangers have a really good system. <laughs> um, you're anticipating my next question. Yeah, but go yeah, on. Yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces that the future's going to We don't have to get into that. His numbers this year, he played in high desert. I think you could hit 15 homers in high desert. We're going to put that to the test. <laughs> Mike could probably hit, Mike, Mike probably about 18. Oh, um, I've got more power potential. <laughs> you've got a little more power potential. I could hit about six. Um, <clears throat> it's a very friendly place for hitters. So I think people are going to want to see what he does uh, at the next level because the plate discipline still is. It's not like he's drawing a ton of walks and not striking out. It's kind of the opposite. So uh, when he gets to double A, whether it's at the end of this year or more likely for, for a longer period of time next year, I think that will speak to how much of a guy he really is. No, speaking of the Rangers, obviously he goes to the Braves. Uh, they traded uh, Brinson to the Brewers. They traded Luis Ortiz to the Brewers. They obviously traded Dylan Tate to the Yankees. And if you look back last year, they got Cole Hamels, and they traded a ton for Cole Hamels, Jared Eikhoff and, and uh, Jorge Alfaro. But they still have a really good system. They didn't trade Gallo. They didn't trade you know Profar and Mazar, I guess, around the big leagues, maybe not prospects. But that's a team that gives up a ton of prospects every year, and they still seem to have more and more. What is it about Texas that really makes them so loaded? They, they've done a very good job of not trading away like whoever their top two guys are for the most part. I mean, this time they traded two and three. Uh, but last year they were insistent on not trading uh, Gallo and Mazara, and you can see what Nomar Mazara is now, and you understand why they, they didn't do that. So they always seem to have pieces left. They, they, they've just done a very good job, uh, especially in the international market. Uh, and whatever you're going to say about A.J. Preller as a general manager and the sort of ups and downs in San Diego, when he was in charge of international scouting, he got after it. And he signed a lot of players. Uh, and you know they were patient with a lot of them. And they had the same approach in the draft in terms of uh, drafting high-end guys. Uh, who maybe had a little bit of risk. You know, Joey Gallo, there was always that swing and miss. Um, I'm not sure what he is. Uh, now they could decide in the offseason they could still move him if they feel there isn't a, a place for him in the big leagues. He's a guy that needs to play every day because if he doesn't play every day, then he's never going to get in any kind of rhythm. and he's, you know, He might strike out all the time. Uh, but, yeah, they've done a nice job building up that system. And they have the financial wherewithal where they can trade – even if they don't trade the number one or number two guy, they trade three other guys. They don't have to fill holes at the big league level just with the farm system. They can pay for, for big leaguers via free agency if they need to. So you talked about the uh, the Futures game. So we were there and uh, very excited to go to the Futures game, probably more so than to actually watch the All-Star game. The Futures game is the best. I would agree with that. First time I'm seeing a lot of those guys in person. And then uh, for us specifically, it's the first time we're getting them in front of the StatCast cameras. Right. Right. So we have this idea, the scouting reports say, oh, you know, David Dahl, Colorado probably has a, a good throwing arm. And then we see him out there in person and he hits uh, 90, 95 point something, 96 point something in the span of about three minutes. Uh, we saw Jeff Hoffman have, have a great spin rate. We saw... Uh, who's the center? Uh, Mar Manny Margot in center field uh, and running around the bases. So when you got a chance to look at that, you know, you obviously you have these scouting reports uh, from seeing guys, from talking to people, and then you can actually put numbers to it. How does that kind of impact the way you're evaluating? Yeah, I think it definitely makes us look at the grades that we put on guys. I, you know, it's not that we'll, we would necessarily change anything because of what he did in the Futures game, but, you know, I don't remember what Dahl's arm grade is. I don't do the Rockies list, but, you know, if, say, it was a 60 and then we see what he did there, well, you put in the back of mind, maybe it's a 65 arm even. Uh, and, you know, the same with Margot, uh, who I automatically thought after the Futures game, I was like, I don't know what his speed grade is, but we might need to tick that up. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> uh, sometimes you get a grade on what a guy's speed is, and then you see how it plays. 
and there are guys who are really, really fast, but they don't know what they're doing, and their route efficiency is terrible. Uh, they make terrible turns around the bases, so they're not, you know, they're not maximizing. You look at what Margo did both on the bases and in the field, and he uses every bit of his speed to its fullest ability, and that's what makes him such an exciting player. You know, there was one guy in that game, he only threw three pitches, who stood out to me. Uh, we just talked about it a little bit. It was Joe Jimenez, uh, mm -hmm. pitcher for Detroit. Not up yet, but it sounds like he will soon, and, and from what I understand, you're pretty high in him. Now, what I saw is a really good extension, and what that means is that he gets out really far in front of the mound, limits the amount of time the ball has to travel to get to the plate. Uh, what do you think about him? I love Joe Jimenez. I mean, some of it's the story. This guy wasn't drafted uh, out of Puerto Rico. Uh, so a tremendous job to the Tigers scouting staff to find this complete diamond in the rough. And he goes out on the mound with that chip on his shoulder that says, you didn't draft me, well, I'm going to show you that I deserve to, to be drafted. And we don't do, you know, we do top 10 by position, but we don't do top 10 relief pitchers. And maybe, maybe we should because we need to add more lists, Matt. Let's, <laughs> I can't believe I just said that out loud. <laughs> He's and on, on record. And on record. Yeah, really. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Can uh, just re rewind that, but uh, Jimenez would be on uh, right at or near the top of that list. I think he's going to close. Uh, his 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 fastball, breaking ball, power combination is tremendous. He throws a lot of strikes. This is not a one of those edge of your seat kind of closers where he's going to walk the bases loaded and you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, he's you know fairly efficient in, in that regard, and, and the stuff continues to you know. Play. I remember first noticing him, he was in the Midwest League, and I think he was there all year because a guy like that's going to have to prove himself. I was like, okay, plenty of guys close in the Midwest League and then they move up and the stuff just, you know, maybe he's got a really good change up or something like that. And he, he's gotten better. I think he's thrown harder as he's matured a little bit, and it's played at every level he's been. So I, you know, you never know who's going to close or who's going to be a setup man. That depends on what a major league organization wants to do, but he has, you know, that future closer label written all over him. You, you, you've unintentionally led us into our, our next topic, our, our, next, well, our next segment, actually, because it's going to be a list of relievers, which you said, oh, I can't believe I brought up a list of relievers. So we're going to get to that in a second. But Jonathan Mayo, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate you going through the prospects with us. Uh, where can we find you on Twitter? At Jonathan Mayo. Very simple. Okay, that's easy enough. Jonathan, thanks so much. Thanks, Mike. So as we just talked about with Jonathan, we are going to get into a list of relievers, and hopefully in a unique way. Uh, and then after that, I, I have a, a, a stat-casty catcher theory that I want to bounce off you. But first, relief pitchers, right? And if you think about it, we, we, everybody at the trading deadline, you know, some teams are obviously fighting to get to the playoffs, but a lot of teams are just loading for the playoffs. They're looking at who that 25-man roster is going to be in October, and I think bullpens are more important than ever. And we've learned that the last couple of years, right, with Kansas City especially, with how much teams are given up for Chapman and Kimbrell, like bullpens are the name of the game. And in fact, the three teams that basically went out and got a big reliever, the three teams most likely to be in the playoffs, the Indians, Andrew Miller, the Cubs, uh, Rolls Chapman, and the Nationals, Mark Melanson. Like, those three teams... Yeah. For all those purposes, they're going to the playoffs. They don't need those guys to get them to the playoffs. So they made those trades. I mean, Miller will be around for a couple of years. So it was sure. the Indians were obviously looking beyond this year. But Melanson, Chapman, straight rentals. This was, we want this guy for the playoff bullpen, which I think is sort of what, what you're getting at. Yeah, and then if you think about a playoff bullpen, it's not the same as a regular season bullpen. Regular season bullpen, you might have 
20 different guys cycling in and out. You probably got your core of six or seven or whatever, but it's not the way the postseason works, right? You've got your big guys, like because there's more time in between playoff games, so you can use them more aggressively. So I looked this up for Kansas City last year. If you look at their big four, and so this is Davis, Madsen, Herrera, and Hochevar last season. Uh, during the regular season, they threw 46% of Kansas City's bullpen innings. During the postseason, they threw over 68% of Kansas City bullpen innings. Like You can kind of just use the cream of your crop more often than you need to. So if you were to look at overall bullpen ERA this year, for example, Texas is terrible. They're third from the end, but it doesn't matter because half of those guys have been DFA'd or injured or traded. They're not going to be appearing in the postseason. Or if they are appearing, it's going to be in in mop-up duty. Right. Or in an extra, or in like 15-inning game. So if you're looking at a possible postseason bullpen, you're really looking at, I think, the big four. And obviously you're going to get like a lefty reliever here and like they're not going to throw 100% of the innings, but who's got the best big four? So that's what I wanted to look at. And so I kind of went through this last night. And the first thing I did was I picked 14 contending teams, and that's everybody on our MLB.com postseason probabilities page who has at least a 20% chance of making the postseason. So sorry, Rockies fans. Sorry, Yankees fans. That left us 14 teams. It's basically half the sport. I thought that was more than enough. And then we went through and picked four guys, like the top four guys in the depth chart for each team. For most teams, the first three were easy. The fourth one may be a little subjective. And this, and this, but... is, and this is post-deadline, right? So you're oh, post-deadline. Including Jeremy Jeffress, his performance in the Rangers pot. That's exactly right. And that's the whole point. It was what, what teams have turned themselves into. So Miller's an Indian, Chapman's a Cub, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and then we, we ranked them by, by two measures. First was Team ERA, and even their ERA is not perfect for relievers. It's, it's the whole point is, are you preventing runs from getting on the it's, board? It's a decent proxy, particularly when you're talking about a group of relievers. Exactly right. Uh, and then win probability, this got a little bit complicated, but if you're familiar with win probability, think about every play either adds or subtracts some amount of chance of your team winning or losing, kind of based or, or rounded up to 100. And then uh, there is a, a stat that Fangraphs has called shutdowns and meltdowns, very similar in concept to saves and blown saves. But the point is that you don't have to be in the ninth inning to get a save, which is the huge flaw of the save. So shutdowns is if you've added 6% win probability, and meltdowns is if you've lost 6% win probability. So it's a good proxy for that, and it allows all relievers to take place. So we ranked 14 teams, and uh, I don't think we're going to list all 14 of them out, but some of them really stood out to me as being interesting. I mean, you've got the list here too. The very first team was a surprise, and maybe it shouldn't have been, is Baltimore, right? Baltimore is dominating. I think some people will be surprised, but they shouldn't be because... Uh, Britton Brock and O'Day, O'Day have been fantastic for a couple of years now. That's and, four all-star appearances for the three of them. And, I mean, when you look at reasons why the the Orioles seem to have been overachieving the last few years... It's the bullpen. It's the bullpen. Bullpen and, the, and power. Yeah. Because the rotation has always been questionable, but they go to the bullpen. Zach Britton is probably the most underrated reliever I mean, they, they're, they're, their pitching staff in general is pretty close to what the... Royals have been lauded for the last few years, but they just get a lot less hype for it. I guess they haven't won the World Series. They haven't been to the World Series. They won the World Series, understandably so, but like they're basically doing the same thing. Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's not a shock to me that they were number one. They were first in ERA and second in our win probably low metric. Um, you know, actually, I think all of the top three were interesting to me because the Cubs and the Indians didn't make it by this ranking. Number two is the Rangers, and I found that fascinating because, like I said, if you look at their entire bullpen all season long, third highest ERA in baseball. And then they're actually number two in this list. And that's because, uh, obviously, Jeffers hasn't been pitching for them, so that's a boost. Tony Barnett, who they, they fished out of, of Asia last year, has been really good. Jake Diefman came in the Cole Hamels trade. He wasn't just a, a toss and He's been a really good reliever. And Sam Dyson has one of the highest uh, uh, ground ball rates in baseball. All these guys throw really hard, and I'm not even including Alvarez or Matt Bush. Well, it's interesting also you mentioned Diefman because it almost seems like this, is, this has been John Daniels' MO the last two deadlines where he's made a big trade for... You know, the marquee player last year, Hamels, this year, Lucroy, 
but he's also gotten and he's given up a lot of prospects yeah, to do it. But, but he's, he's gotten also the a reliever, a potentially dominant reliever coming back last year. Deakman, this year Jeffress, yeah, uh, as sort of like the second piece, the subtle piece. And as we've got, we've talked about it before the quote unquote Wade Davis trade, aka the James Shields trade. You know, often getting that that reliever tagged tacked on to the the bigger package is uh, the uh, the unsung benefit of those big, big deals. Yeah, and the Rangers are a good object lesson in how volatile bullpens can be because I thought they'd be a good bullpen coming into the season, and then Sean Tolleson exploded, and Keone Kayla, who was really good last year, got hurt, and uh, this is, it's almost an entirely different group of guys now, and they've been very successful. Number three, and uh, just knowing this fan base the way that I do, that hear anybody say that this is a good bullpen, I think it's not going to go over very well with people. It's the Dodgers, right? Kenley Jansen is having the best season. He was already one of the three or four best closers in baseball. He's having the best season of his career. He's an absolute monster. And I don't, he's going to be a free agent this winter. I can't imagine what's going to happen if the Dodgers don't sign in. Yeah, it's, it's, I think every fan base of a team that's sort of like maybe is underachieving or has been frustrating in any way, they think their bullpen stinks. Yes. Just because like you lose a lot of close games and who gets the loss? It's a reliever. So I, you assume that your bullpen is terrible. Yeah, and I, I think for the Dodgers, it's also that they've kind of, they've, they've built these names that are not big names, right? They didn't go get Chapman. I mean, they tried to. Uh, it's like Joe Blanton. Joe Blanton, and I, this is not a joke, he literally retired two years ago. Like, that's how far off the map Joe Blanton was. He's rebuilt his career as a slider-heavy reliever who's been really, really good. Adam Libertor, they stole him from a trade with Tampa Bay for Joel Peralta. That, that's... He, he just set a Dodger team record for 28 consecutive scoreless appearances. And Pedro Baez, who Dodger fans love to hate Pedro Baez because he gives up home runs at the worst times, throws hard and strikes people out. I mean, that's actually a pretty decent start to a bullpen. Yeah, it's, it's the way relievers have sort of, the bullpen usage and the way they're valued is sort of the most, it's probably the biggest, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, like biggest they, variance? I would say like, maybe, maybe, I hate to use this, but maybe the biggest market inefficiency is the, the fact that like you can, you can find value and sort of like play the bullpen market in ways to gain big, big advantages. We were talking about this earlier today, like with the Yankees, sort of using the fact they had this lights out bullpen to capitalize on that desperation of the trade deadline, overhauling their farm system by trading away Chapman and Miller and kinds of huge haul, huge hauls for guys that are going to pitch 20 innings the rest of the season. Yeah, I'm going to pick one more off here just because uh, there's one name I want to talk about and then I'm going to let you go for one. The Marlins, I have sixth. At a 14th, and I don't think the Marlins would be a team that would really stand out to people because it's another team without big names. Now, I think most people probably know Fernando Rodney, but uh, Kyle Bearclaw, and I'm almost positive that's the right way to pronounce that name, is Bearclaw. He's a guy they got from St. Louis last year for Steve Ciszek, and I don't think anybody in the world knows who Kyle Bearclaw is. He has the third highest strikeout percentage in baseball behind Miller and Betances. And then he also has a walk rate of like six per nine, so that's probably a problem. But if you look at him, A.J. Ramos, underrated closer, David Phelps' first year as a full-time reliever has been lights out. He's like double the strikeout rate. It's actually a surprisingly good bullpen. Imagine if they still had our boy Carter Craps there. Hey, at least they've got Fernando Rodney. Um, the team for me that's most surprised is the Astros at nine, mostly because I think that they're kind of on the ascent. Ken Giles seems to have kind of like found it so they get hurt by by his high era yeah. right because he had a really tough start to the season i agree with you on that for sure yeah I got, he his he has 14 consecutive scoreless outings with 23 strikeouts and four walks i think i saw darren woman tweet he's like hitters are two for 55 against his sliders yeah, 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 yeah right i think is two, two for 58 i think i saw something like but uh, it seems like the early season the player they traded for is now the is guy now that, that pitching for them and i think that as the season progresses that's going to be an equalizer. For it's just, they're always in flux, right? Like Gregerson was the closer to start the season and he lost the job. Will Harris took it and he was very good, but then he's blown like three of his last six opportunities. Maybe by the end of the year, it finally will be Ken Giles' closer. I, it seems like it. 
And then the, uh, the I go to the end of the list here, uh, 12, 13, and 14, Red Sox, Blue Jays, and Giants. Uh, you know, they all they all did something to try to improve their team. The Blue Jays were the toughest for me because I just, I'm not really sure who to put here. Like Osuna, I think, underrated. Osuna is awesome. I really like him a lot. Jason Greeley's bounced around. Like, uh, who are you going to put there? Tough if you count Aaron Sanchez. I did count Aaron Sanchez. Okay, well, yeah. there you go. And I, <laughs> you know, Scott Feldman, who I like, he's very good at limiting exit velocity. But, you know, you look at that team. They just traded Jesse Chavez. Uh, they just, uh, uh, Brett Cecil is kind of rough. You know, Drew Storen was supposed to be the guy. They just traded him. I wasn't going to put in, I guess, uh, uh, Joaquin Benoit. He's a wild card. I think one of those guys is going to... I, based on nothing, I think one of those guys, most likely Benoit, is going to be good for his new team. Yeah. It just it seems like one of those trades where it's like both teams kind of dumping a guy they don't yeah. want, and it's just bound that one team's going to end up like shaking their fist wildly in the air. Well, it's all right. So anyway, this full list of 14 and the explanations why will be up on the site. Uh, I'm almost certain that 80% of you will be very angry about your team's ranking, so please at me about it. One final bullpen thought before we get to your crazy catcher theory, or maybe not so crazy catcher theory. Looking at those, Brad Ziegler, in light of all the trades for relievers, he seems oh, what like the, he got? Like the biggest bargain. I, I honestly, I don't even know the, the names of the two guys. But I, I <laughs> what do you think? Well, like the, the Melanson trade, the Chapman trade. This guy who's like they got it for almost free. Yeah, and no disrespect to the guys Arizona got, but they not they were not highly regarded. I think one of them wasn't even as highly regarded as his own brother in the farm system. So they credit to the Red Sox for sort of like pouncing yeah. early before teams got really desperate for relief help. Absolutely, they did really well in, in getting Ziegler. And I like Ziegler. I like Ziegler a lot, and especially knowing Kimbrel was hurting and they needed a guy, and now you have them both. Uh, with Koji Uhara's stat is very uncertain, so I agree with you fully on that. Uh, we are going to finish off today with a question about catchers, and I wanted to I wanted to talk about this because I, I thought it was kind of interesting. Uh, when you look at you know for years and years, the, the measure of a defensive catcher has been how good are you throwing base runners out, right? And I think we've always kind of known in the back of our head, well, it's not really just about the catcher. You know, the pitcher has something to do with this. And now, you know, we can measure all this stuff with StatCast. And so every time I see a successful caught stealing, I go look up the numbers and I see how hard the catcher throw the ball. And invariably, it's like 79, 80, 81, 82 miles an hour. Like, that's the band I almost always see. And you're looking at a chart right here that kind of shows that's not just even caught stealings. That's all catcher throws, right? It's all within that band. And then I noticed this morning, there were a couple throws, you know, 88, 89, 90. And I wanted to see, well, maybe who's, who's this? Maybe they do have really strong arms. And you know what I found? Almost all of those times when I watched the video, it wasn't a straight steal. It would be a, a bad ball in the dirt or bounced off the shin pads where the guy jumps out from behind the plate, has momentum at his back, and then guns it. And that's where the extra miles an hour goes. So if you kind of exclude those, you're really just looking at this band. Does catcher arm strength matter? Is it, is it matter like a tiny little bit in the grand scheme of stealings and caught stealings? Because I'm starting to think that's true. So I guess the, the, different, the different factors would be pitcher's time to the plate. Pitcher's time to the plate, yeah. I guess the, the other thing that's not really stat casty is how good their move, like how good their move is. That sort of like yeah. keeps the, the runner from getting a good jump, right? right. How well, decept the, the deception of their their move. Sure, but we but we go to the like the runner getting a good jump. We can measure that. True. We can absolutely measure lead distance. I think yes. that's a huge part of it. And we talked about that with Paul Goldschmidt. Yeah. That's a good lead distance. Uh, how quickly the catcher's pop time is. Like how quickly does he get rid of the ball. And then accuracy, I think, is obviously an enormous part of it. Well, pop time does include arm strength, essentially, because it's time two seconds. You're right. But you're, we, talking about, like, you're talking about exchange. We, and we can measure that yes. separately. Uh, but I, and I almost think like we could do a, a, like a pie, right, and say, okay, this is 15% importance and this is 30% importance. And I feel like if we ranked those things, arm strength might be really, really low on that list. I think we need to uh, put this on a... Tom Tango's dog. Oh, I already have. I talked to him about it last week, and he's like, we can definitely do that. So I bring this up not because I have an answer, but just to kind of show you the behind the scenes. Like, we, you know, we think about these things. We go, well, we got to figure that out. And what I'm saying right now is I think we're going to find out catcher arm strength is very, very 
unimportant, uh, at least compared to what we thought it would be. And hopefully we'll know in the next couple weeks and months, maybe we'll have an answer to that. Great stuff. And do you agree? Do you disagree? Um, I think it's a really interesting theory. And it, like, when you look at the number, because I've had the same thought, it's like, you know, with outfield arms, it's fun when we look up these great throws because once in a while we'll see like... 105. Oh my God, 105 or even 101 or 98. And then sometimes, you know, so those kind of like, there's a, there's a huge uh, outfield assists. You'll, we'll see everything from like 90 to 105. Right. right, like Ichiro threw out a guy the other day, great throw, accurate. It was like ninety-one something miles an hour. Like I'm not taking away my guesses. Ichiro probably a few years ago was ninety-five plus. You know, maybe it doesn't quite have the velocity once did, but point stands. You see a wide variance in outfield assists, but and, and I guess it's all relative. But it's still, you don't see the same thing in, ca- in catcher arm strength. It's really seventy-eight to eighty-one. Basically, is almost that's exactly what I almost hope. every like clean throw to second base is. Between 78 and 81. Like when you're talking about fractions of a second, every mile per hour counts. But to your point, I think that we're probably going to see that. It's a small spread, it's a, right? And the things, other things matter matter more. Right. That's exactly right. A lot of other things matter more. So anyway, that's my theory. We'll put some numbers to it, and hopefully we'll find out. And that is our show. Uh, thanks to our guest, Jonathan Mayo. I'm Mike Petriello. Matt Myers over there. Thanks for listening on the StatCast podcast. We will catch you next week.